Well, glad you're with me today. This is going to be a wonderful sermon. We're going to talk about voting in politics today and what the Bible says about Christians when they want to take over. A lot of Christians believe that they can vote according to the Bible. They believe that there are certain verses that you can apply and God gives you a clear guideline regarding who to vote for. Is that right? Is that what the Bible says? Today, our big worry is going to be triumphalism, the idea of triumphing over people. When Christians want to take charge, when Christians want to rule, you don't want to miss this today. This is really going to be good. So sit back, enjoy the message. I'll come back and pray for you at the end. But get ready as we talk about Christians and voting. You don't want to miss this. This is a series that will help you through this challenging season. Stay there and enjoy. I want to talk about voting in politics today. This has been part of my series, and this is part three in the series, and I'm really, really, really excited about it because I want to explore this question of whether or not someone has the right to tell you, based on the Bible, who to vote for, whether or not a person has the right to open up the scripture and say, you've got to be a Republican, and if you want to go to heaven, you better vote Republican, and if you don't want to go to hell, you better be a Democrat. Boy, I tell you what, you don't need to be a Democrat or a Republican. You need to be an independent. And some of you are saying, I don't want to vote for anybody. So where should you land? What does the Bible say about that? Now, last week, I went to a great length to talk to you about the fact that America is a big experiment. 1776, America uh, won its independence from Europe. And now, all of a sudden, really from Britain, but now we are, in a way, in a place that's tremendously different. This is a... Um, a time in our life in history. Well, we need to realize that this experiment is at risk. For the first time in our history, we're having to look at ourselves in a new way. The virus has brought great pain and great anguish to our country. Many people have died. Uh, as the date of this taping, over 210,000 people have died and counting. There are a lot of people who are hurting. There are a lot of people who are struggling and trying to find uh, balance in this season especially in a very difficult political environment. And it's very polarized. We're fighting against each other. But Jesus gave us a warning in the Bible. He said, a house divided against itself can't stand. And I think it's important for you to realize that that's that's the danger we face. We all lose when we are divided. We all lose when we don't stand together. So the question is, what do you do? How do you overcome this season? What do you uh, what steps do you take to reroute your life, to get yourself back into a good place? What are the decisions that we need to make together? Well, in this series, I've been trying to take you through four conversations. The first conversation was about the truth about voting, the responsibility of governing. That when you're governing, there's a responsibility that you have, a responsibility to everybody. And you can't just be the the, uh, president of one side or the other. You can't just be the, you understand this in your home, you can't just be the parent of the boy and not of the girl. You got to care about everybody in the house, cousins, aunts, everybody in the family is important. Secondly, today we're going to talk about the truth about Christian triumphalism, the truth about Christian triumphalism, triumphalism. That's a big word, right? (laughs) The word basically has to do with this idea of conquering, taking over. And I'll talk more about that in a minute. But today's sermon talks about when Christians try to take over, when Christians try to take over, amazing things happen. And the assumption that Christians are always right, that those who go to church, Bible-believing Christians are always right, is just not historically true. Thirdly, we're going to talk about the, the issue of lying. Why do we lie in politics? The truth about lying in politics. We'll talk about that. The truth about lying to yourself specifically. 
And why is it so easy for us to lie to ourselves during political seasons? We buy into things that aren't true. I've, I've been a victim of it, and maybe you have been too. And then lastly, we're going to talk about the truth about being spiritual. And this whole idea of being spiritual in a secular world. How do you balance the two? What if they don't want to be a Christian nation? What if they don't? How do you live and love people who are secular? Living and loving secular people. What about people who say, I am non-religious, I don't go to church. How do we respond to that? My honest feeling, and I'll talk about this later uh, in our study, I don't think Christians have a formula for that. We don't have a formula for dealing with people who say, no, I've heard you, you preached to me, you told me about Jesus, but now I still want to live this way or that way. Or I'm only going to take 10% of what you said. I'm not going to apply all of it. I'll sing the gospel songs. I'll, I'll do the gospel dances, but I'm not going to live the gospel life. What do you do about that? Do you yell at them, preach at them when it's your son, your mama, your cousin? What do you do? Every dinner you mention it, you write on the mirror when they brush their teeth. How do you live with people who say no? They work with you, but they plan to still cuss. They plan to still fight. What can you do about that? You don't control everything. But Christians think that they are called many times to conquer everybody. Triumphalism is the focus of our word today. I want you to look at this word. It's an interesting word. And it's a word that is our key word for the day. And it's a word that I found to be fascinating. I, I ran into this word in a book by my, my pastor, my previous pastor, Jack Hayford. And in this book on worship, he talked about triumphalism. And he talked about it in a way that was interesting. But let me define the word before I read a quote from the book that I think will help you see how I came to this argument and this, this conviction. Look with me, first of all, at uh, Oxford definition of the word triumphalism. Excessive exaltation over one's success or achievements is used especially in a political context. An air of triumphalism reigns in his administration. That's how you would use it in a sentence. And there is something about people who have this air of triumphing and taking over. And it's this assumption that they know what's best for everybody. They triumph, root word triumph. Their goal is to dominate and control everybody. Jack Hayford in a book, uh, as I said on worship, made this statement. And this is the first time I really encountered the word. It, it, maybe I should have before now, but this word was made in a statement in his book on worship that I thought was fascinating. Listen to this. This is um, Jack Hayford's book called Majesty, God Enthroned in Our Worship. I don't believe in triumphalism, he said, that pretend world of the religious idealist who supposes that a band of super saints will rise to take the earth by force. Let me read it again. I don't believe in triumphalism that pretend world of the religious idealists who suppose that a band of super saints will rise to take the earth by force and dominate society through supernatural power or political control. However, there is a kingdom to take and there is a force to exert and the people of the highest are the ones to do both. And that is fascinating. This idea that somehow there are these super saints who have the super discernment and everything they say is right, and everything they see is right, and everything they believe is right. And that leads to some very dangerous assumptions. The assumption that you are right and never wrong. And that's not true. Matthew chapter 20, there's a discussion. And in this discussion, uh, James and John come with their mother, 
the Zebedee family, they come and they talk to Jesus and they make a political request. Now, a lot of times when you read Matthew 20, if you're not careful, you think this is a spiritual request. It's not. You're going to see that in their request to Jesus, they are basically using the knowledge they have. And whenever you interpret scripture, you want to make sure you understand how those who first were told this information saw it. What we do is we transcribe it into some spiritual place. But this is a conversation they have with Jesus about a job opportunity. And it's a political position. It's an appointment they want. Listen to what he said in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your kingdom. Pause right there. Now think about this. They asked for political positions. They asked to be on the left hand and the right hand of Jesus in his kingdom. Their concepts of the kingdom, we'll see in a moment, was basically physical kingdom. The Romans were ruling. They thought Jesus was going to come as the Messiah, take over the world and, and, and stomp out the Romans and set up his earthly kingdom. A political earthly kingdom, a physical kingdom, not a spiritual kingdom. Let's go back to the text and watch what else it says. Look at me in verse 22. Jesus' response was, you don't know what you're asking. Jesus said to them, can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus uh, said to them, you indeed, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit on my right hand or left is not for me to grant. Notice that these places belong to those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the 10 heard this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Now, let me pause right there and say this to you. The 10 guys come and they hear this incredible conversation and they are furious because these two guys, while they went off to buy food or whatever, they came back and Jesus was being asked to give them the top political positions. <laughs> and they were indignant. They were hot, angry, couldn't believe it. Time we turn our back, you guys won't take over. Time we turn our back, you're trying to make a move. See, they all thought of a physical kingdom. But watch Jesus' response to them. I want you to go back with me now. And he said this in verse 24. When the ten heard about it, they were indignant with the two brothers. Verse 25, Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord, notice that, Gentiles lord it over them. And their high officials exercise authority over. Notice, Gentiles lord, high officials exercise authority over them. Verse 26, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. The word in the Greek is the word waiter or attendant. And it, it really implies in verse to a person who is just a servant. You serve. Diakoneo is the word. Then notice verse 27. Whoever wants to be first must be your doulas, slave, strong word. Bond servant. Think of a person in, who's bound, a slave, a full slave. There's something strong here that he's trying to portray. Your attitude should not be to be served. See yourself as a servant. You wait the table. See yourself as a slave, he says. He elevates it a bit. You're not just a waiter. You're a slave. You're committed. You're totally committed. 
You're bound to, to me, to, to the gospel. You're bound to, to Christ, to God. It, it's, it's, it's a total sold out lifestyle. Watch what he says now. Verse 28. Just as the son of man did not come to be served or waited upon. Right. But to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Two different Greek words for servant. One has to do with being a waiter. Then he deepens it and says, now we're talking about slavery. Totally commitment, total commitment. And that, my friend, is the picture Jesus paints. That goes so contrary to the way the disciples saw leadership. But it's something we'll talk about later called servant leadership. Matter of fact, let me say a little bit now. You want to know how God says leaders should lead? This is the way. As a servant leader, not as a dominant force. Leadership is interesting. Um, and I have been a student of leadership. Uh, my master's degree is in strategic leadership. And one of the things you study when you study leadership is there is this need to define what a leader is, how a leader leads, what's the, what's the best approach. And one of the best approaches studied across the world is, is servant leadership. And that's what Jesus models. We should look for every leader that we want to appoint we want to look at them and say, is this a servant leader or a dominant leader? Is this somebody trying to control us and dominate us? Or is this somebody trying to lead us? Jesus said, in my kingdom, that's how you lead. Now, if you want to use the Bible as a measuring stick for voting, if you just want, I want to throw this in for free. If you want to use that as a model, we'll use this. Use servant leadership. Is this person, senator, president, leader, whoever it is, is this a servant minded individual? If they're servant-minded, well, that's a good starting place. But let me step past that for a second. There's something that I believe, and I, I want to just say this. Nobody's perfect, but that's a prerequisite. Jesus said, for my kingdom. Now, there are four potential questions to think about at this point, And I want you to think about these four questions because I know they're on your mind. Here you go. You ready? Number one, can you be a Republican Christian? Can you, can you be a Christian who is uh, identified as a Republican? Can you be a Democratic Christian? Now, some people say, no, you can't be no Democrat and, and, and you can't, you can't, you can't do it. You can't do it. Huh? See, I want you to stop for a second. Notice the prerequisite in Scripture was servant leadership. Whether you be a Republican, whether you be a Democrat or whether you be an independent. Whichever the three you choose to be, the question is, can you be a Christian and be either one of these, Republican, Democrat, or independent? Yes, you can. The prerequisite is being a servant leader, though. That's the question. So I want you to see that. That's the linkage. Can you be a non-voting Christian? Yes, you can be that kind, too. And I think that's a shame. I think, well, I don't believe anybody's right. No, start with servant leadership. Start with, start with a basic analysis of the servant driven passion of the person you wanted to vote for. The idea that you, you, you can't, uh, let me say it another way. Sometimes you, you criticize, but you, you separate yourself from the process. Don't do that. Get involved. You can be a Christian who doesn't vote. Be clear. You can be a Christian who's a Republican, a Democrat, and you can choose to ignore everything. But I don't think that's the way it should be. The Bible calls us to get involved, to care about it, to care about the whole thing. This country is a gift. 
what God's given us. The key is that we're servants, though, that we serve each other. The disciples were tempted to fight each other the same way the Republicans and Democrats and independents are right now. But that's not the way. Jesus said, it shall not be so among you. Let me tell you something about our country that I like. I want to put this up. I want you to read this with me. Look at this. The United States was established by the colonists to advance themselves financially and escape the tyranny of the European leadership culture. The kings and rulers of Europe did not give the ordinary man the liberties the founders of this country dreamed of for all men. The Revolutionary War was a declaration of independence and a chance for all men to be free. Look at that now. For all men to be free to pursue their dreams. They could be Republican, Democrat, independent, or have any political or religious view they chose. The problem was the dream never came true for everyone. That was the problem. The problem was we weren't servant leaders. Our leaders became dominant. Our leaders made bad decisions once they came to power. And so it's not so much about Democrat, Republican, or Independent. The issue is the leaders aren't serving us like servant leaders. And that's what we need. We need people to care. I am a father and I have a family. And as a servant leader of that family, it's my responsibility to care about their financial well-being, to care about where they are. And if you're not careful, you'll lose focus and miss out as a father on your big assignment. And that's to be a servant leader, to care about everybody, not just dominate, not just get your will in your way, not to abuse those that you lead, but to love them. Let me go back to our story where we started in Matthew chapter 20, and let me show you how this plays out in the Zebedee conversation. I love the few things that I want to highlight for you that I want you to not miss. First of all, notice that these guys ask for top political positions, Matthew chapter 20. They want to sit on the left hand and on the right hand of Jesus. And they're not rebuked for that, by the way, which is interesting. Number two, they, they were asked about their leadership abilities. We'll get to that in a second. Can you, can you do the job? Thirdly, they were given political and leadership boundaries. They couldn't just dominate everything. And number four, they were challenged to be servant leaders. Four main things that I want you to think about. Number one, they asked for political position. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 through 21, we read, grant these two sons of mine to sit in, your, in, in, in leadership roles. I like the fact that they had ambition. God never rebukes them for that. There's nothing wrong with having political ambition. Run for office, do what you want. That's fine. Nothing wrong with that. The issue is, can you do it? Do you have the ability? And that was the second big question he asked. Can you do the job? And if you look at the text, verse 22, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Now look at verse 23. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. But to sit on my right hand and left is not mine to grant. I can't just give it to you. Now, notice the couple of things he's saying. Number one, he says, I want to check your abilities. Can you do the job? That is a question. Can you practically manage the job? Now, here's how we know if you can do the job. Results. That's pure, plain and simple. Look, look, look at the economy. Look at the, look at the atmosphere. Look around you and say, is this good? Is this good or not? And that, that's the criteria to determine, Jesus said, your leadership abilities and, and qualifications, the results. I live with that every day. I live with the reality that as the pastor of the church and as the father of my family, my results matter. Thirdly, look at this. They were given political and leadership boundaries. You can't be in charge of everything. 
And this is where I think Christians struggle. Because in this triumphalistic, there's a big word again, triumphalism, right? This idea to conquer, take over. We have a problem when it doesn't go our way. Look at verse 23. Judah said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit on my right hand and left hand is not something I will grant to you, but it's for those for whom it's prepared. In other words, I can't just grant you things because you ask for it, just because you pray for it or because you speak some words over it. You can't just do that. It's not, that's not how it works. The idea that, that we have some inalienable right to say it and get it because we said it and want it, because we see it one way, we, we can tend to be so domineering that we lose sight of everybody else's rights altogether. And Jesus said, no, that's not for you. That boundary, the boundary that's here is not a boundary that you get to cross. You can't just pray and ask for this position of authority. You can't just pray and ask to be the leader just because you want it and because you think you deserve it. The question is, the point rather is, there are people for whom this is prepared. Sometimes it's not my turn. Sometimes it's not, it's not for me to be in charge. Some of you prayed for a church, prayed for an opportunity. It didn't work out. It wasn't for you. And Jesus said, you can't just pray for this and it's granted to you because you said. So think about that for a second. There's a boundary there. You know what I love in the book of Joshua? When God told Joshua to go conquer the land, he said, the Canaan land is your boundary. This is your boundary. Your boundary is not the whole country. You don't get to own Turkey and Spain and every place else. You don't get to do that. You have a boundary. This from this river to this mountain, he gave them boundaries in Joshua chapter 1. The Christians don't do well with boundaries sometimes. People don't do well with boundaries sometimes. The ability to say, this is, this is all I can do, all I should do. Which brings me to the last point, number four. We're called to be servant leaders. That's what he mentioned to them. I, uh, I can't say enough how important it is to get this point and not miss it because if you're not a servant leader, you're the kind of leader who says, if it doesn't go my way, we set the whole place on fire. Jesus said something profound about people who don't serve him in Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. Listen, listen to this text. It's interesting. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbors and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Let me stop there for a second. A servant leader understands that everyone is not going to agree with him. The question is, can you serve people, Republicans, who don't agree with you? Can you Democrats serve people who don't agree with you? Can you independents? Can you serve and love people who don't agree with you? That is a real test of a servant leader. If I am a Republican in heart, if I'm a Democrat in heart, and the people out here are not, do I then say, I, I'm not going to send rain and blessings and wish good things for them. I love this verse. He says he causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. He loves everybody the same. It doesn't change because you're not perfect. For a lot of people, you have to be perfect. Biblically, theologically perfect before I will love you, trust you, or even give you a chance to be heard. 
Look with me at verse 46 of Matthew chapter 5. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people of your own party, right? What are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Here's what he says, though. Be perfect, teleos in the Greek. Be mature, that's what it means. Therefore, as your heavenly father is perfect, teleos, or mature, you need to be that way. You need to be like your heavenly father. You know, if you had the power, <laughs> some of you, you would not, if you were God and you had all power, you would say, all the Republicans will get no rain. All you Democrats, all your crops going to dry up. It would rain all around them, but never on them. If you had your way, the way you're sounding, the way you're acting, notice the, the attitude of your Heavenly Father. He said, I love everybody. I love everybody. I love, one more time, everybody. Do you? Well, I don't agree with them. They got some evil convictions, Temple. They got some ways, I'm telling you, I get it. But that's how they see you. Maybe, maybe you need to pause here for a minute and think about your personal convictions. Would your reign fall on the just and the unjust, the Republicans and the Democrats and the independents? Are those who don't vote, who I want to encourage to go vote? But what if they say no to me? Am I, am I in any way prepared for that kind of conversation? Let me close with these final questions. I want you to think about this. What if a political party has views that are inconsistent with the Bible, Pastor Ray? What do you do? Here's a, here, here's a point I want you to think about. All political parties have views that are inconsistent with the Bible. All. And I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to jump in the river a little bit. Ready? Let me talk about for a second. And, and I want to go back to Jack Habert's quote. Remember what he says? He says, I don't believe in triumphalism that pretend world of the religious idealists who suppose that a band of super saints will rise to take the earth by force and dominate society through supernatural power or political control. I want you to hear this. Jack Hayford said, let's be clear. I don't believe, I don't want to pretend that there's a world of religious idealists who suppose that they are super saints who have super insights above everybody else and nobody else matters. Nobody, else, nobody else's opinion matters. And they assume that their biblical conclusions are the only conclusions. The way they see it is the only way there is. Now, let me give a little, I'm gonna, like I said, jump in the river here a little bit. And I'm going to pick on the Democrats a little bit. And I'm going to pick on the Republicans a little bit. You ready? Follow me. Hang with me. Love me now when I say this, okay? Don't, don't, don't turn me off now. Give me a minute. Here I go. Democrats, over the years, had biblical issues with abortions, slavery, creating social dependence for the poor, government spending, and other issues, some would say. I want to say that again. If you look at the Democratic platforms and Democratic decisions over the years and go back to the, to, to the, to the 1800s, Democrats were the ones who were enforcing slavery. They were. It was the Democrats, and maybe you don't know that, it was the Republicans that fought against slavery. So let's be clear, Democrats haven't always had a perfect record. They haven't. Some people say, you know, their view of abortion is too liberal. At any age, stage, any age, you know, you can abort babies at any age. I mean, and that, that's a problem, I think, biblically, when it goes down to just there's no boundaries. 
no boundaries at all. And I don't want to dive too far into that right now. I'm just making a point, though. If you want to say, are there issues biblically? Can I raise some biblical issues with slavery? Yeah, I can. Absolutely, I can. Can I raise some issues about some of the social, the programs that were created that were supposed to liberate people, made them dependent? Can I argue with that biblically a little bit? Can I say, yeah, that's probably not a big, good thing. You want to teach people to work, teach people to have independence. I'm not saying, listen carefully now, I'm not saying that that is necessarily the way it is today. But throughout our history, if you put the whole history on the plate, the Democrats have not been perfect. That is my point. That's what some would say. Number two, Republicans, your turn. Republicans over the years have had biblical issues with the conflicting abortion message and sensitivity to the poor, support for unbalanced government spending to benefit business more than the average persons and other issues, some would say. Pause, look at me, don't be mad, hang with me. Some people would say the abortion issue regarding <laughs> the Republicans have been up and down. Can you abort a baby if you're raped? Can you abort a baby if it's incest? Can you abort a baby if you are, if you are pregnant and, um, and you have uh, a, a pregnancy uh, that's in your fallopian tube, fallopian tube, get it out right, right here, and, and it, it threatens your life? Can a mother abort the baby? What, what is the grounds for this and who makes this decision? That, that's a conversation some people have with Republicans. And so Christians step into it and they just add that they know all the answers to everything. Now, I'm not. I am just for the record so everybody can be clear. I am a person who understands that I don't know everything. I stand as a person who is not for abortion. But listen to me. I think there's something wrong with not listening to each other. Now, I needed to say that for some of you so you'd be okay. Now, some of you ain't going to like me now because I said that. But let me just say this. Hang with me. Too many people have had abortions to not have conversations. Too many people have had issues in their life to not have conversations. You know, what I, you, know, you know what I struggle with? I struggle with the assumption that somehow I am above conversation. That I am so spiritual and I am so close to God and I am so in tune with the word of God that everything I think and say cannot be questioned. And in reality, I think we just become a bit arrogant. We've become a little bit arrogant. I got strong convictions about a lot of stuff, but I don't live in the world with just me. This is not just my house. America is not just my house. That was the problem years ago. Buckle up. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Clear my throat. I'm going to say something. Don't take this wrong. White people, especially white men, assumed America was just theirs. And white supremacists still assume that. And you are wrong. It is our country. You came here and you, <laughs> you, you conquered and you abused men, women, you did some things you need to repent for. Well, at least your forefathers did. And maybe you just need to acknowledge that happened. Now, having said that, don't be mad. Hang with me. That's just the truth. That was an immature season in our life. We have to grow past that. Triumphalism, this idea that we're going to take over everybody. And that came from Europe. They were conquering each other, slaughtering each other over there by the thousands. And that same spirit came over here and attacked the Indians 
drag black people over here in slavery, enslave women, abuse them. And women are still the most women and children are still the most abused in our world today. The triumphalistic spirit still lives. And that's not God's will. Let me show what Jesus was concerned about. You want to really get into it? Matthew 25. Watch this. I'm done for the day almost. Watch this. Verse 14. Verse 35. I'm sorry. Jesus said this. You want to know what was important to him? For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? Then the king will reply, truly, I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did it for me. Look at the preacher for a minute. Let me tell you something as I close here. I can't abuse anybody. I have to care about the least in our country. I have to care about the poor in our country. Republicans, Democrats and independents. That's what Jesus cares about. You want, want a Bible verse? You want to vote based on the Bible? Ask who's caring for these people. If you want to know who should win, it's people who think like servant leaders. It's people who get the fact that we are in this together. We don't need to be divided. We need to be together. Well, I think you're picking sides. How could you think that? How, what did I say today that could make you think I picked any sides? What I did was I laid out, I said my personal convictions, but I, I, I decided that I love you no matter what you decide. But I may not agree with you. The question is, can we Find a way together. Now, I want to leave you with, with, with four simple thoughts, because there's one more big question on the table that needs to, be, needs to be answered. Who should I vote for? You ready? I'm going to give you four answers to this. Number one, who should you vote for? <laughs> vote for the issues that affect your life. Vote for the issues that affect you. If you're the poor farmer up north and your farm is not doing well, then you vote that way. If you're the person in the inner city and you feel that they haven't heard you, you vote that way. You pick a person who's voting your issues. Secondly, you ready? Number two, vote for the issues that advance the issues and causes you believe in. Vote for the causes you believe in. If it, if it advances the cause you believe in, then vote that way. If it's the homeless, if it's the hurting, if it's women's rights, if it's an issue, then vote that way. That's, that's what the American gift was to you, the right to do that. Number three, you ready? Vote for the issues that matter the most to you and those around you. Notice I'm talking about what matters to you. I've said that three times now. What matters to you? What matters to you? And the issues around you in your neighborhood. If they have not fixed up your neighborhood, vote them out. Vote somebody in that will care about your neighborhood. Vote for the issues that surround you in your community. I keep saying the same thing. I hope you got it. Number four. Here we go. Vote for the leaders you would hire to work for your, you in your home and in your business. Don't you vote for anybody you would not put in your home and in your business. If you wouldn't make them over your house, if you wouldn't put them over your business, then don't vote for them. Now, that's going to land a lot of places in people's lives and hearts. Fine. That's a gift that God gave you the right to vote in this country. Take advantage of it, people. 
There's a lot more I can say, but I'll leave you with this final thought. My biggest concern is that we tend to lie to ourselves during this season. I want you to look at yourself for a second and ask yourself a question. Am I lying to myself? Am I in a place of hubris, arrogance, superiority? I'm looking down at all the Republicans. I'm looking down at all the Democrats. I'm looking down at all the people who are not independent. I'm looking down. I'm looking down from my high tower of financial wealth or strength. Or I'm looking down with my high with my high sense of myself. Am I? You can have no money and be a proud, hubristic person. You can be a person who's just full of pride and not have anything. Hubris doesn't come with just money comes with attitude. So I want you to think about it. My time's up. I'll talk to you for 35 minutes or so. My time is up. Let me pray for you. Father, I pray for those who've heard the message today. And I pray that what I've said today brings life to them. In these minutes we've been together, I pray that they would just think about it for a minute. They would open their hearts and their minds and just think about it. This country must care about everybody. Everybody has to have a a right to experience your best. And God, I pray that you'd help us to find our way. We've had a messy history. We've gone through a lot of loss. We've gone through a lot of loss of life recently. We've gone through a lot of loss in, in our history, through wars and through diseases before. Help us, oh God, find our way. Help us find our way together. A house divided cannot stand. We've got to band together and we need to do that for our future in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, listen, thank you for being with me today and thank you for being patient through this series. Next week, we got, we, we're going to jump into this again. And I really believe that one of the hardest things to do is to tell the truth. I believe that one of the biggest sins in the Christian community are in the world is lying. And there's some people that believe that it will never stop. We'll lie forever. And there are reasons we'll lie. I'll talk about that and what the Bible says about it and how to, how to face the truth. I had some moments in my life when I wasn't being honest with myself. I thought I was. And I'm always asking God, Father, help me see the truth. Help me grow and learn and grow and become better. I pray that for you. And I pray that through this season, you not allow yourself to be confused. Take a stand. Remember, it's your right to vote. It's your right. God gave it to you. A Christian can't take it from you. A Bible believer can't take it from you. A pastor shouldn't take it from you. I, I do not tell my members who to vote for. Now, I don't believe... Legally, pastors aren't supposed to do that, by the way, just for the record, since we want to talk about the Bible. Uh, you, your 501c3 would be at risk if you were to do that, technically. But let's not talk about that. Secondly, let me say this. Everybody's in a different circumstance. Everybody is. And the reality is, I think sometimes we've lost our way. But I want to give you some guidelines that you can take and apply to your life. And I think it's important. If a wife votes one way and a husband votes another way, it's okay. It's right. It's, 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 it's a gift that you got in this country, and that's not everywhere in the world. So use the gift God gave you. I've got to go. I'll see you next time. Let me just say this to you. So many of you have listened today, and we talked about politics, and we talked about all this other stuff, and you're saying, Pastor, but my issue is you make me think about my walk with God. What you said today helped me see how much God loves us, giving us these opportunities we have. And maybe I need to think about my walk with him. And so let me pray for you. Maybe that's the issue you face today. Father, I pray for people today who are struggling in their walk with God. They feel lost and separated from you. The politics and the venom of today has them all confused. May they realize that you died on the cross to give them the chance to be free. And that this strife we're in is temporary. And I pray, God, that they would open their heart to receive you. 
and that they would allow your forgiveness to come into their life. I thank you for them in Jesus name. Amen. Well, I pray you were blessed by today's message. I pray that it brought clarity to your heart. This was a deep dive into the subject of voting and politics. It's, t- it's tough for Christians to talk about this sometimes. It's hard to have those heart-to-heart, honest conversations. And it, when we take you off that spiritual mountain where you can't go around quoting a thousand verses, you have to really just talk. Sometimes we're disarmed and can't communicate. But today I hope I challenge you to think about it. You know, you learned a lot. I learned a lot just thinking through this stuff. It was amazing. You know, the farmer that's up there in the north who's struggling with his farm has a right to vote based on his farm issues. The person that's in the inner city who feels disenfranchised and feels as if they've lost economic strength has a right to vote that way. The woman who feels disenfranchised, the school teacher who feels disenfranchised, everybody who feels that they've lost something has a right to vote their conscience. The question is, should you vote for that person? I paused there a little bit because that's a hard question. Should you vote for that person? Well, ask yourself this question. Would you want that person to be a leader in your home? Would you want that person to be a leader in your community? Would you want that person to be a leader in your business? Well, vote based on that. If they can bring to your company the values that you believe in, then vote for them. Now, nobody's perfect. No employee is perfect. I've hired enough staff to know that. And I'm not perfect as a boss, but I've learned something as a leader. I've learned that there's something about being honest and understanding my boundaries. The boundaries I laid out for Christians today basically say, as a Christian, you can't use the Bible to stop stop people from voting their heart. You cannot take the Bible and use it as a weapon to say, you can only vote on this side, not on that side. People have different circumstances and different needs. And God gave them this great gift of America to make that choice. So I want you to vote. But let me pray for you first. Father, I pray for, for whoever is hearing this today that's making that tough decision. May they feel at peace. And may they know that it's okay for them to vote. They don't have to be bound by a conviction of a group of believers or Christians. Or they can say, you know, based on what I see and what I feel, these are my rights. And so, Father, I thank you for that right. It's a right that a lot of people in the world have have never had. And I thank you for the great country we live in. And with all of its flaws, it has a lot of strength and a lot of good. A house divided against itself cannot stand. May we band together as a family, love each other and vote forward in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, listen, thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to me. Next week, I'm going to talk about lying. Why is it so easy to lie in this political environment? Oh, boy, it's going to be great. And I want to show you how lying slides in to our political environment and poisons everything. The Bible says a lot about lying, and it all centers around a big word called hubris, pride. And I'll talk about that next week. I'll see you then. Bye-bye. God bless.